This afternoon, I may preach you the gospel as we have confessed and summarized in Lord's Day 51, what we confess about the fifth petition, and forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. And it is for this reason that we'll read a passage from the Gospel of Matthew. We will read Matthew 18, the verses 21 till 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owned him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity with him, for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owned him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him and say, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant? So I had mercy on you, and in anger his master delivered him to the jailer until he should pay all his debts. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's also read Lord's Day 51. You can find it on page 563 of your book of praise. What is the fifth petition? And forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. That is, for the sake of Christ's blood, do not impute to us, red sinners, any of our transgressions, nor the evil which still clings to us, as we also find this evidence of your grace in us, that we are fully determined wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbor. 
In response to the gospel, we will sing as our Amen song, Psalm 147, the verses 1 and 4. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the book Great Expectations by Charles Dickens, there is a lady called Miss Haversham. If you have read the book, you will know that she spent her days in dark, darkened rooms wearing a wedding dress that is old and faded. And in the story we learn that many years before, Miss Haversham was jilted by her fiancé on the morning of their wedding at exactly 8.40 a.m. For Miss Haversham, life stopped at that precise moment on that day. This is what she says about the deterioration of her wedding dress. The ma is not at it. And sharper teeth and teeth of mice have not at me. Miss Haversham is a sad lady. And she's also a bitter lady holding on to a past hurt, refusing to forgive. In fact, the darkness and drabness of the house and of her clothes reflect the state of her soul. She, imprisoned, she is imprisoned by her past. The clock stopped at 8.40 a.m. for Miss Haversham. Now let me ask you, has the clock stopped at a certain point in your life? Are there past hurts and offenses that you are holding on to and refusing to forgive? Are you a prisoner like Miss Haversham, living in a dark and drab surroundings which reflect the bitterness of your soul? Something happened in the past. You were really offended, for instance. Or someone did the dirty on you. And there are many people who refuse to forgive. For years they do not talk with other persons. They neglect the other person and give the cold shoulder. They harbor resentment and hold grudges. Victims can become bitter, wishing only to get even. And for years they live like Miss Haversham. Well... If Jesus had insisted on his rights, and if he had given us what we all deserved, there would have been no cross. What if Jesus had dealt with us the way we deal with others? 
to pray, forgive us our debt as we also forgive our debtors is a risky business. Do we really want God to be as forgiving as us? How can we have the nerve to ask for forgiveness if we are unwilling to offer it to others? Let us realize that if we pray this prayer, we plead guilty before the throne of God. But if we pray this prayer in the right attitude, we may expect much from God. Yes, even the strength to act as the image of God in the forgiving of our neighbors. And therefore, I will summarize the message of Lord's Day 51 in this way. In the fifth petition, our fifth petition is our prayer for forgiveness. And we ask the infinite forgiveness by our God, the first aspect we will see. And we ask for the heartfelt forgiveness of our neighbor, the second aspect we will see. Therefore, in summary, our fifth petition is our prayer for forgiveness. And we ask for the infinite forgiveness by our God and the heartfelt forgiveness of our neighbor. How is it possible that we can live as Miss Haversham with bitterness in our soul? There is only one answer possible. By nature, we are inclined to hate God and our neighbor. And as you may know, there is a slight difference between our petition in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Luke. Luke used the most common word for our wrongdoings, forgive us our sins. Whereas Matthew points to our sins as debts. Forgive us our debts. And this word debts is remarkable. We are used to this phrase. It sounds familiar because it is the phrase we often use in our standard version of the Lord's Prayer. Yet the notion debt as an indication of our sins is not used anywhere else in the New Testament but here. And Matthew and Luke give an account of two different occasions in which the Lord instructed his disciples how to pray. And the difference between Matthew and Luke goes back to Jesus' own wording. Obviously, he chose the first time to use that unusual word for sins, and he called them debts. And it is very important to pay some attention to this rare expression. You all know what debts are. Debt is a household word in the financial world. It has a negative meaning. Someone does not meet his liabilities. He buys at random and falls into arrears. He comes in the red and payment becomes an illusion. And of course, he can neglect the reminders, but one time he will receive a final notice. He has to pay. 
And this makes clear what our sins are. People do not meet their liabilities towards God. They do what they like. You have the impression that they live an exemplary life. They answer their financial and social obligations. They never get into trouble with the police. And they give every man his due. And they give themselves a very high mark. In the meantime, they do not take the slightest notice of God. But God keeps his books up to date. Their deficits are mounting up. And one time, he will call them to account. He claims payment. Sin is often defined as a missing of the mark. And in that definition, a target is that for which we are always called to aim and which also we are obliged to hit. We must hit the mark. And if we fail, if we miss, we fall into debt, a debt which can never be repaid, a debt which also demands our own death. Well then, the mark for which you and I are called to aim is perfect love. Love for God and therefore love for the neighbor as ourselves. Or, to put it in other words, that mark is God's glory. That is the mark that must be our focus in all that we do and say and in all that we are. You are obligated to live every moment of your life out of love for God. And as he tells us, that love is manifest in obeying his commandments. His entire word all his precepts, without any exception, are to be obeyed by us every moment of our lives. And the reason for such a high demand upon us is exactly because God is God. Because he is absolutely sovereign. Every creature must be subject to him in everything. Besides, God is pure holiness. His law perfectly portrays that holiness by the law, by every precept that proceeds from his mouth and that which is set before us in the scriptures. God set before us his holiness and he requires our conformity. And exactly because he is God, any transgression, any missing of the mark is such an offense to God that his wrath burns. He has promised the greatest blessing to all who adore his majesty, 
who gave him the honor that it is due, who loves his holiness, but he speaks his most dreadful curse on all who fail to keep all his commandments. And sin is acting in such a manner towards God of heaven and earth as if he is no God. When we sin, we act as if there is no God, as if we owe subjection to no one, as if we have the right to determine our own way. To reject God's word, to walk our own way, is to thrust God from his throne. Or worse, it is to put ourselves on the throne with our spiritual father, the devil. Proud self-exaltation, proud rebellion, that is our sin. And the form of that sin doesn't make it any less than proud rebellion against God. Whether committing fornication or living in drunkenness, whether telling a little white lie, a little slander, one incident of evil speaking against the neighbor, whether belittling the word of God as it applies to one particular aspect of our lives or failing to do our homework, which God called us to do because we would rather go out and play, God says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And if that is not clear enough, the Apostle James writes in James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. By our sins we run up a debt which no power of man will be able to discharge through all eternity. The prophet Micah, conscious of the debt of God's people, asks, What does God require? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told your man what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, and to, will hope, and to walk humbly with your gods. And clearly the idea is that our failure to do what God has required has put us under a debt that is absolutely impossible for us to pay. Do not we... For our sins deserve to be cut off from all happiness, from all fellowship with God, from any hope of future glory. And the idea is even expressed in our parable. 
It is the right of the Holy God to execute his justice by subjecting us to everlasting torments of body and soul. It is his right, according to the picture of that parable, to deliver us to the tormentors until we should pay all that is due to him. Something which is absolutely impossible. Besides, we must not overlook the fact that our Lord reminds us that we petition God here for the forgiveness of that that's in the plural. Forgive us our sins in the plural, not singular. If we had contracted but one debt of this nature, the horror of that one debt is indescribable. But we are chargeable with many debts. Our sins are more than we can count. And the time is coming when God will set them all before our eyes. And then God presents us with the invoice. After all, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wants to settle accounts with his servants, with those who were subject to him. This does not mean that we are to think that the lowliest servants were called to account. The king doesn't bother about them. He calls in his high-ranking officials to, to have their accounts settled. And that becomes obvious when they bring one of his servants to him. These servants owned him as much as 10,000 talents. An astronomical amount. Because in that time, a talent was the biggest currency unit known. And converting it into our currency, we could say the man owed the king $40 million at least. So the man is confronted with his bankruptcy. He can't cover up the money. And paying off will never eventuate in view of the enormous amount. Then the king commanded that he should be sold with his wife and children and all that he had. The king wants to see something back of the money he had entrusted to him. Something is better than nothing, he would have thought. And when faced with his complete bankruptcy, he can't ask for forgiveness of the debt, the man does the only thing he still can do. He falls down before the king. He asks for temporary reprieve. He appeals to the heart of the king. He asks for patience. It is, in fact, an absurd question. Everyone will realize that after a period of reprieve, such a big debt still can't be paid. His debts have mounted up to such a degree that payment is impossible. And then they are all utterly surprised. Because what happens? The king begins to feel sorry for his servant. And with one word, he forgave that multi-million dollar debt. The forgiveness is infinite. Infinite for everyone who kneels down. That is the way of the kingdom of God. 
It is completely different altogether from the realms of this world. There the bills must be paid down to the last penny. Otherwise, we are settled with the consequences. And nobody feels sorry for you. The servant receives his just desserts. In the kingdom of God, kings are completely different. Every day the heap of unpaid bills piles up. And the debt has become too great for us. We can't even put a dent in it. And as we grow older, this becomes even less and less so. The Lord asks for all our heart, for all our soul. He asks for all our mind and for all our strength. And we can't give this any longer. And in the deepest need of our life, the Lord teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts, for the sake of Christ's blood, do not impute to us, red sinners, any of our transgressions, nor the evil which still clings to us. The Lord will free you and take you out of those dark rooms of Miss Haversham and admit you into his house of light and love. He tells us to pray and to enter the heavenly sanctuary to receive the forgiveness of sins. For in our prayer we may rely on Christ's works on the cross. He has paid his Father for all our unpaid bills. And as an exclamation of joy it sounded across the earth, It is finished! And that cry of delight now stamps our unpaid bills. It is finished. The debt is completely paid. At the Comparative Religion Conference, the wise and scholarly were in a spirited debate about what is unique about Christianity. Someone suggested that set Christianity apart from other religions was the concept of incarnation. The idea that God took human form in Jesus. But someone quickly said, well, others faith believe that God appears in human form as well. Another suggestion was offered what about resurrection? The belief that death is not the final word, that the tomb was found empty. But uh, someone sl- slowly shook his head. Other religions have accounts of people returning from death. Then, as the story is told, C.S. Lewis walked into the room. Tweed jacket, pipe, arm full of papers a little early for his presentation. He sat down and took in the conversation, which had by now evolved into a fierce debate. And finally, during a pause, he spoke, saying, what is all this commotion about? 
everyone turned in his direction. And trying to explain themselves, they said, we are debating what is unique about Christianity. Oh, that is easy, answered Lewis. It is grace. The room felt silent. Lewis continued that Christianity uniquely claims God's forgiveness comes free of charge, no strings attached. And no other religion makes that claim. After a moment, someone commented that Lewis had the point. Buddhists, for instance, follow an eightfold path of enlightenment. It is not a free ride. Hindus believe in karma, that your action continually affects the way the world will treat you. That there is nothing that comes to you not set in motion by your own actions. And someone else observed the Jewish code of the law implies God has requirements for people to be accepted to him. And in Islam, God is a God of judgment, not a God of love. You live to appease him. And at the end of the discussion, everyone concluded Lewis had the point. It is grace. Only Christianity dares to proclaim God's forgiveness is unconditional. An unconditional love that we call grace. His grace to forgive our sins has precious little to do with us. Our inner determination, our lack of inner determination, rather, grace. It is all about God and God's freely giving to us the gift of forgiveness, mercy, and love. And this brings us to the second aspect, that we ask for the heart for forgiveness of our neighbor. Two little brothers... Harry and James had finished supper and were playing until bedtime. Somehow, Harry hit James with a stick and tears and bitter words followed. Charges and accusations were still being exchanged as their mother prepared them for bed. And she said, now boys, what would happen if either of you died tonight and yet never had the opportunity again to forgive one another? But James spoke up. Well, ma'am, okay. I will forgive him tonight. But if you are both alive in the morning, you would better to look out. How often do we hold unto our grudges and choose not to forgive? How often do we live as Miss Haversham in a dark house full of resentment and grudges? 
is important, therefore, to notice in what context the Lord Jesus spoke about forgiveness in the kingdom of heaven. The disciples started with the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child and set his child in the midst of them. And he said, you have to become as little children. In the kingdom of my father, you can't make progress by elbowing your way forward. I ask for humbleness. Woe to that man who causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Woe to the world. Woe to the man by whom the offense comes. It is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. But what happens if such a child of God, a brother or sister, is sinning? What do you have to do then? Well, he or she will be cast into hellfire. Everyone who is not willing to repent puts him or herself outside the kingdom. But if your brother or sister will hear you, how often do I have to forgive him or her? Up to seven times? That sounds nice. Up to seven times. Whereas we are often short-tempered, Peter shows that he had already understood a lot. With forgiveness comes repetition. Seven times. And Peter only sees the human side. Surely forgiveness runs out one day. No. Jesus says seven times, 70 times seven. The forgiveness is infinite. And has to be infinite. So it is with God. And the forgiveness between men is determined by God's forgiveness of man. For in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, writes John, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 1 John 4. And therefore the catechism puts the emphasis on a particular spiritual disposition required of us in order to approach God with his prayer. The emphasis of this matter in Scripture shows the seriousness with which we must take it. Remember the last part of our position as we forgive our debtors? And notice how our catechism explains that last expression. Forgive us as we also find the evidence of your grace in us that we are fully determined wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbor. May I ask you, do you find that evidence of God's grace in yourself? And this is a serious matter. Because as Jesus made clear, if we cannot declare this, if we cannot say from the heart, Oh God, I from the heart forgive my brother, then we cannot ask for not receive the forgiveness of our sins. Do you understand the seriousness of this? Christ comes back to this very truth 
when at the conclusion of the prayer, which he teaches his disciples, he said, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Matthew 6, 14. And that means we are eternally lost. Make no mistake. And therefore the attitude of the servant is so bad. Relieved from his, of his death, the servant goes home. He can scarcely believe it. Instead of imprisonment and slavery, he is a free man. But at the same time, he frowns and bursts out in anger. He sees a fellow servant who owes him something, a trifle, a hundred denarii, a few ten-dollar notes. He sees him by throat. You owe me something. Pay. And suddenly it becomes obvious that the servant does not have a clue about what forgiveness really means. Because this is really the question. Does the forgiveness which God has given me change my heart? The great indignation of the other servants is understandable. Filled with grief, they came and told their king all that had been done. And the master takes back the acquittal. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. The fact that we have received forgiveness must in turn lead to the simple action of granted forgiveness. Let your heart speak. Your heart that understands a little bit of the difference between the multi-million dollar debt and the debt of a few dollars. The servant refused forgiveness. Don't overlook that for one who pleaded for forgiveness. It was not a matter of refusing forgiveness to one who had no sorrow for the debt he had incurred. The man had expressed sorrow of heart and a desire to make things right, but the unmerciful servant would not receive him and refused refused to forgive. And in that way, he revealed himself for what he was, an ungodly man who had no grace in his heart. And now the Lord set that picture before us as a warning. How often does that in Scripture? He warns you and me because of the sin that is still within us that we are not to walk in the steps of the unmerciful servant. The same way that God forgives, we must forgive. And you understand, of course, that it means also that if the neighbor does not want forgiveness or does not ask for forgiveness, you cannot get rid of that forgiveness either. When we ask for forgiveness, we are patient. We are sorry before God for the sins that we have committed and for that sinful nature that we bear. So also, it is with the neighbor, shows himself sorry for the offense he has committed that you then can forgive and not in any other way. The prayer for the forgiveness of sins is rooted in the love of God. When we pray for the forgiveness of sins, 
not just mouthing the words, but praying from the heart. When we take this position upon our lips with all its significance, we do so because we love God. The scripture makes it very clear. You can't hate the brother who walks in your midst and claim to love God whom you cannot even see. When you have the grace of God in your heart, you love your brother, and the least part of love is forgiving him. Our Lord wants us to heal our relationships. He makes it possible for us through his grace and forgiveness. And we must forgive as our Heavenly Father has forgiven us. And don't forget, brothers and sisters, God forgives completely. He does not harbor resentment. He does not hold grudges. He did not become bitter as Miss Haverham. And let us be honest, if you act in that way and live as a Miss Haverham, you will destroy your own happiness and joy as well. The Lord forgives abundantly and completely. In hearing your honest prayer, he will cover your sins entirely with the blood of his own dear son. His mercy is without limits. And therefore, the same spiritual disposition is required of you in the praying of this petition. Shall we pray it? Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Amen.